Hello, this is Discussions with a Physicist, an educational podcast that puts cutting-edge physics research under observation, providing resources, advice and content from experienced collaborators to help you tackle the problems of tomorrow. I'm Flint Shabinian, and joining me here is amateur physicist and author George Robofsky. This podcast is supported by Madison Area Science and Technology, a non-profit science organisation that does research without regard to credentials. In the next two weeks, we shall take a small yet nonetheless important diversion from our main content on discussions with the physicist, where we put amateur physics under analysis, the key distinction here being the word amateur. Here shall we highlight certain aspects of collaborative or independent scientific research, as well as the scientific method itself, academic culture and what we mean by it, and the danger of becoming a dreaded crackpot. Now, the importance of the discussion cannot be overstated, as I'm sure you'll agree, George. Absolutely. I mean, we want people to be able to pursue their work and have others follow it. And if your work is unreliable, nobody's going to pay any attention to it. So you have to be very careful to prove your assertions within your capability and so that others will follow it. No, definitely. And I'm sure you'll maybe perhaps you'll agree to the extent that many that are perhaps listening to this podcast and and any others that don't perhaps associate themselves that well with the academic uh, culture or whatever that is, um, they they perhaps follow this mystification that there is a fixed bar between the highbrow academics and the quiet amateurs that kind of work away in the scenes. And um, perhaps there is some sort of attitude that those that work in amateur science often lead down into the path of a crackpot because there isn't as much... Uh, opportunity as there might be in academia, which uh, is is not at all near the truth, as I'm sure you'll agree. Yeah, as a matter of fact, it's almost like there are two sets of poles. One, you have the amateur has as much time as they want. They don't have the pressing time constraints that the professional has. But on the other hand, the professional tends to be more disciplined than the amateur. So yeah. No. You have these, everybody fall, every scientist falls within these four poles somewhere. Mm. And so, but there's intrinsically no difference between them. No, absolutely. Would you say this attitude is uh, damaging to the wider scientific community? I think it is. Uh, there's a trend lately for having professional scientists collaborate with amateur scientists for collecting data or even analyzing data. And this is expanding. In my own case, I've actually published peer-reviewed journals in theoretical methods of physics, and mm. I've also given presentations at conferences. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely no, brilliant. Um, so I suppose we should hear our intentions in this podcast to give those quiet amateurs a voice, as it were, where our main focus will be on amateur scientific research, but also on scientific research as a whole. Um, and as we should also see throughout the podcast, and as we've already discussed, there's little difference between the two. Um, which we will flesh out a bit later in the podcast. The first thing we're going to talk about, though, is uh, debunking this image of our amateur as Mr. Crackpot, a character that we have created for the purposes of this narrative, almost as a as a regression to uh, amateur aims and and, and uh, progress, uh, not only in amateur science, but also in, in the wider scientific community, whom the listener will soon discover is their worst enemy in this narrative. Uh, but first of all, what, while we'll talk about Mr. Crackpot a little later, I would like to first talk about uh, 
the impact on crack, of crack pop culture on, on yourself, George. Uh, I'm sure I'm sure you've had your fair portion of it all. Um, could you give us any more on, on that? Sure. Uh, you know, and it isn't limited to the amateur community. I receive a lot of emails, letters. People have sent me books that they've published. Uh, you know, there are even been presentations given at at conference meetings where a professor will get up and say something that he probably shouldn't. Uh, you know, it's not limited to amateurs, but it is something that's a colossal waste of time. Uh, you know, I mean, when somebody sends me a 200-page book and it's all crap, uh, you know, I don't want to have to deal with it. Well, I suppose having a fundamental mathematical framework, it, it kind of goes without saying. Uh, without without that, you can't really progress forward. Um, but besides besides a, a broader mathematical prowess, is, is also having a, a method of approach to understanding material and, and doing scientific research, and, and not only scientific research, but good scientific research. And, uh, and I think, to a certain extent, the, the amount of resources out there are, are quite limited, um, and, and the, kind of the, the information that people can have to, to kind of progress forward and organise themselves and communicate their ideas, the, the, the amount of information on that is, is quite limited in that respect. Um, would you agree? Well, certainly most of the resources that are out there are geared towards the professional and the, the academic student. So there aren't as many resources for people who are interested in doing it on their own. Uh, I did write a book on how to study on your own. It's available through Lulu, a self-publishing place. Uh, and there are books like that around, but they're very hard to find. So well, to say so to say true to that, I would like to talk briefly about the types of physics methodologies that are out there. Um, I think you yourself characterize them in four different types. Yes, in fact, you have uh, observational and experimental. I kind of lump them together as one, even though they're real, really separate. They're very similar. Then there's computational, and then there's mathematical and theoretical, which is lumped into one. The interesting thing is that there's almost this inverse cost ratio. Uh, the experimental and observational work is the easiest to get into right away. You don't need to have a huge background in the science or mathematics, just enough to get by with the data analysis. Uh, but it's more expensive. And then on the other extreme, you have the mathematical and theoretical, where all you really need is a library card and pencil and paper. Uh, but it tends to take a much longer period of time to get the expertise necessary to contribute. And then there's a sort of middle road, which is computational work. It's sort of a hybrid between theoretical and experimental work where you're actually trying to create artificial data effectively. You're trying to model what would the data be like if this idea were true. And that's kind of a middle road. It takes a couple of years to get the background that you need to be able to program the computer right. Mm, absolutely. And I, all these areas are, of course, accessible to the, the dedicated amateur. Um, but we, we should, of course, I think in this podcast, focus more on the theoretical aspects um, required um, and where, where all that is needed really is a pen and paper. The, 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 the prerequisite being, of course, is a solid fundamental framework of understanding. For now, we shall talk a bit more about the kind of requirement of hard work. Hard work is a, is a necessary thing. Uh, would, you, would you agree? I would agree. Uh, you know, there's no there's no substitute for hard work. It, it takes the same amount of work to develop the technical background, whether you're in school or on your own. It's just that the amateur has as much time as they want to spend on it. 
they don't have the pressure of classroom deadlines or professional deadlines. So the key distinction between an amateur scientist and a professional scientist is that the, they, the amateur scientist does not have a constriction of time um, and they can select their own kind of options of research. Well, there's also, uh, there's also tends to be a, a lack of um, discipline. Uh, most amateurs I've met aren't really disciplined, but they can become so. You know, you can learn to become disciplined. I'm going to study at this time each day. I'm going to spend this much time each day on this. And they, uh, you can develop those habits. So before we move on, it's important to realize that all of physics is attainable to you if you put in the work and effort required. Yeah, in the words of Sylvanus Thompson, what one fool can do, another can do. For example, uh, in his book, Teaching Introductory Physics, Arnold Ahrens has a really interesting test that I give to people occasionally, much to their chagrin. So let's say you have the formula P equals 6S, S, where P is the number of professors and S is the number of students. How would you interpret that? Um, I'd say for every one professor, then, that means there's six students. And that is absolutely wrong. It's completely backwards. If you plug in the number of students, if you have one student, then the number of professors would be six, right? Oh. <laughs> so that's an example of jumping to a conclusion. You think you understand something, you're familiar with the idea, but you actually aren't coping with the reality of the situation. I see. And have you, who, have you, who have you, else have you used this test on? I, I've caught people who are actually PhDs with this. Really? Now there we go then. And again, it's the prejudices. They are, you know, it isn't that they don't understand the math. It's just that they're not. They're thinking the problem and they're not looking at the equation. I see. No. Okay. No, that's a fair point to make. That also, I think, in not just in physics, but in every um, creative or um, theoretical aspect, there is a there is um there's a, a piece of advice people give that you should have imitative work to begin with. Um, and if you want to contribute and you're, you're an amateur and you're, and you're just starting and whatever you're getting involved with, whether that be physics or uh, photography or whatever, um, you should copy a style or have imitative work to a certain extent that you can base your, um, your conclusions on. Um, so finding a new solution from an example that's already been worked out for is, is a simple one. So any, any simple uh, problem that's been solved before, if you find your own solution to that problem based on uh, an, a, a previous example that's already been given, that, that's already a step in the, in, the, in, the, in the works. Do you agree? Oh, well, that's the source of homework problems. I mean, you know, these are all solved problems that have been done before and you're just doing them again. Uh, that's the whole point of most of modern academic education. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, you have to be able to use the tools correctly. And in theoretical physics, for example, the tools are mathematics and thought experiments and things like that. If you don't have a strong background in those, you have to develop expertise. And the only way to do that is by doing it. Hmm, absolutely. Um, and then obviously, there's there's the other aspect of doing uh, understanding problems is the uh, is what is the discussion between 
doing independent or collaborative effort in in, in anything uh, in understanding material or or you know you gave the example of doing a homework problem but what separates doing independent work to collaborate work, collaborative work and what's the pros and cons to begin with so if the listener is an amateur should they what should they consider doing independent work just to begin with or should they also branch out and try and be collaborative well to an extent when you're doing theoretical work it's very difficult to do it collaboratively unless you know a person really well you know basically you have to be able to do it independently before you're going to be able to do it collaboratively because no you know if you have a partner they're going to want you to pull your own weight so you have to learn to be able to do these yourself. Now, that doesn't mean that every theorist is an expert at every theoretical method, uh, but they're at least going to be familiar with the methods. They may not have developed the knowledgeable expertise, getting back to the illusion we made before where you have that evolutionary process. Uh, but you are expected to at least be familiar with what's going on. So if you're part of a team... You know, it depends on the dynamics of the team. And there are as many dynamics as there are teams. I suppose there's one minute digression we can take from that, and we can stomp out another uh, mysticism, is that there is no such thing as lone genius. And I fully support this idea um, in whatever in ever, in whatever field, not just physics, again. Um, that to a certain extent, there is also, there is always some form of collaboration involved, whether you're basing your work, imitative work, off other people standing on the shoulders of giants as the common phrase is used there's there's no such thing as a lone genius um and uh, do you support that idea or no no you don't okay i mean when albert einstein developed spe the special theory of relativity he cited no papers he cited no work um he basically can't he's he'd been thinking about these ideas since he was a child and uh so I think that, you know, it's obviously you have to start somewhere. So you're going to be exposed to ideas, but what you do with them is uniquely yours. Okay, so we've talked a bit about how to understand material uh, from a kind of a very fundamental basis and we and i kind of want to want to wrap up this this part about talking about how this podcast takes a top bottom approach so what we do with each concept is that we we find a concept on the very frontier of physics research and we break that down into digestible kind of understandable material uh, in a con in the context of open questions but fundamentally academic physics and physics in general is done very much from a bottom to top approach where you take you start from the small problems of solving and understanding the concepts around them, and then you work your way upwards to the bigger, more abstract world of, of physics. And I think that's personally the best way to go, really. If you have an infinite amount of time, it's the best way. But the top-down approach actually works really well, in my experience. I mean, because you have a focus on a particular problem that interests you. And then you say, well, I don't really understand what the event horizon of a black hole is. So you, so you try to master that. And in trying to master that, you encounter terms that you don't understand. And you 
and you connect that to what you already understand. And then you can go back forward again. So mm. a top-down approach is more streamlined. Mm. It doesn't give you a broad basis for everything mm. like okay. the bottom-up approach, but it's it's more accessible. It allows you to focus more on what you're interested mm. in. Okay, I do agree with that. But wouldn't you say that the top-down approach is more, for, for someone that's approaching the, the field who's new, isn't it, aren't they more susceptible to being a crackpot if they take the top-down approach because they have, they've, they're exposed to material from the, the top end of physics and they, they, they want to get to that before they know the fundamentals. Isn't that more dangerous? It certainly can be. Uh, again, you have to follow the rules of physics. You know, you have to follow the scientific rules. So, you know, you can't shirk that. You can't get lazy. If you get lazy, you'll become a crackpot. But if you stick to it, you can avoid that. Now, we've been dealing with the concept of academic culture quite freely up until now, and I haven't really uh, reined in on what I mean around the kind of um, the slight implications that I've been making. And I know, George, you have quite a contention with these ideas from, from our previous discussions. Um, so if there is a such a thing, I'd like to explain myself. Uh, when I mean when I say academic culture, I mean that the area of of, of criticism in research and the publish or perish um, atmosphere that the academics create around themselves, they kind of perpetuate research forward. So it's, it's a very kind of structured um, organization of of both the bottom to top approach and 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 kind of criticizing work and going forward. Um, that, that, that sort of thing, the academic culture being working in groups around a problem, research groups, and not kind of the lone outcast that the amateur is seen to be. Well, I mean, there's a lot of that going on in the academic culture, as you call it. Uh, you know, I, I've been in research groups at, the, at universities, and I've done my own independent work at the in those groups. Uh, I, I don't see that there's a problem in the way that papers are critiqued or published. In you know, that's the game we have to play. Even as amateurs, we have to follow those rules. We aren't going to get a paper published in Journal of Mathematical Physics if it doesn't meet their standards. So on the other hand, I've never had anybody ask me when I try to publish a paper, what my academic background is. So I don't think, you know, you don't have to come from this background to be able to contribute. You just have to meet their standards. As to the publisher parish, that's one thing the amateur doesn't have to cope with. You know, if you're, if you're attempting to get a, a tenure track faculty position, you have to publish a certain amount of papers within a certain amount of time, and they have to have a certain amount of impact, or you're not going to be accepted. Okay, but the, the importance of risk in one's work, um, admitting faults and mistakes, i.e. being ripped to shreds uh, by other academics, that's surely relevant to amateurs as, just as much as it is academics. Oh, yeah. I, you know, you still have to obey all the rules. If you make a mistake, people have the right to catch you. If you if you make a statement that you can't support, people have a right to challenge you. Mm. And so you have to, you know, the burden of proof when you write a paper is on you. Mm. <laughs> so you have to make sure that everything is correct. It isn't up Absolutely. to them to explain why you're wrong. It's up to you to explain why you're right. 
Okay. No. All right. That's that's one part. The second part, I think, uh, I'm going to tackle the holy grail of scientific research, as everyone will gasp. Uh, it's it, that's that's the scientific method. Uh, w- when we say the scientific method, I I will define it in my own terms as you make a hypothesis and you make based on the hypothesis and various axioms axioms of 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 thought, you will you will base your research and conclusions and see whether that fits the previous hypothesis that you made. And then that, that in itself uh, creates open questions, as we will tackle in the podcast, of which one can answer and can be criticised by the rest of the academic community. Now, I know you have a problem with the scientific method. <laughs> well, there is no scientific method. Uh, this, is a, this is a concept that was created by educators no scientist sits down with a checklist of these methods and says, "Well, I've looked at the da- I've looked at nature, so I check that. I think I perceive a pattern. I check that. So now I treat that as a hypothesis after I've analyzed the data. And now let's see, I go and do the. Nobody does that. No practicing scientist does that. Again, this is something that science educators created to." promote science fair projects and stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong with promoting science fair projects, but people have this skewed idea that scientists sit there with these checklists of methods. No, they don't. Every scientist develops their own methodologies. So that's something that you, the listener, should should avoid. Yeah, well, you know, along the way, you'll develop your own style of doing research. But, you know... That, that's why you do that imitative stuff. That's why you solve these problems until you're blue in the face. You know, you do these problems over and over again so that you get good at it. And you can then apply these ideas. Okay. No, brilliant. Okay. Now, okay, let's let's take a step back a bit and uh, consider the defined difference between academic and amateur research, which is the which is the main point of this podcast. Um, before we move forward, so uh, George, if you could take over on this point. Sure. Uh, at its most fundamental level, research is research, just like physics is physics. Amateur physics is the same as any other physics. So. The idea is to answer answer a question that nature has posed. You look at something and you go, I wonder how that works, and you try to figure it out. Along the way, you use other people's explanations, and you look at them and say, does this make sense to me? Do I understand exactly what this exp- how this explanation is built and what its ramifications are? And if it is, if that's good, then basically take that ball and run with it. What Richard Feynman said is, if you find a kind of calculation that you like, do it over and over again. Become an expert at it. And that's the same thing you want to do here. So on choosing and and making an assertive choice on the questions you want to talk about or tackle, um, uh, which we have... Or the methods that... Or the methods that you yeah, want to which use. we've rambled on about. Um, which, how how important is taking into consideration other people's work and papers? Well, if you use what somebody has done, you have to attribute it. 
So it's it's very important in that regard. If you're just starting out, you're going to have to learn how to use the methods of mathematics and the methods of thought experiments and things like that. You know, arguments from symmetry and dimensionality and things like that. And you need to attribute those. You need to say, well, I got this expertise by looking at these books and and doing these problems. So it's very important if you use somebody's work, credit them. Mm. Okay. Is there is there any rules or any golden rules or unwritten rules to writing a, re- a research paper, in your opinion? Well, follow the format of a research paper. You start with an abstract, which briefly describes your work so somebody can decide whether or not they want to use it. Uh, you have an introduction where you talk about the, what makes this problem interesting and the history of it. Then the body of the paper where you go through the work that you've done, uh, the bibliography or reference section where you list the what you used as a resource, and then appendices where you talk about things that aren't that are important, but they're not central to the idea. So if you have a proof of a theorem or something like that, that would go in the appendix. That's the general format of a paper. Uh, write in the active voice. Don't write in the passive voice. You don't want to put your reader to sleep. Uh, and tell a story. How did this evolve? Yeah. Okay. So to what extent in, in academia is it, do, I, do they have more of a, of uh, an accessibility to um, these papers or appropriate background background knowledge than amateurs? Well, usually if you have an academic institution, they have a massive library where all the journals are located. And so if you're affiliated with that, you then have access to all those materials. Doing it on your own, it's a lot more problematic. Now, in physics, there's a, there's a, a paper server called Archive, which allows you to get access to preprints before they're published and to get materials that don't hit the journals. Uh, and that's very important to be able to use. And there's a lot of material that's freely available on the Internet. Of course, you have to be very careful. There's no editing process for material on the Internet, and there's no quality control. So you have to be very mm. careful. Okay. And in terms of actually doing amateur uh, research from the from the starting basis, what would you say is the most important thing to take into consideration based on what we talked about so far? I would say that there are probably three things that you need to have. You have to have determination, you have to have courage, and you have to have a level of arrogance. Of course, every theoretical physicist has a level of arrogance. I can do this and nobody else can or you wouldn't be working on the frontier problems where nobody has a clue as to what's going on. <laughs> okay, no, that's a fair point. Um, and also, talking about specialisms, um, the, the area of specialist physics that you can become involved with, um, in specialisms there's a certain area that people work towards, there's certain problems that people aim for. Um, is it, How important is it in... in in following a specialism or tackling just open problems, i.e., how is important is it to be uh, original or non-original? Because in my opinion, I think aiming for originality, especially when you're starting off, and um, provided you have the required knowledge to do so, I think that that's a risky game um, and can obviously lead lead to being a crackpot. 
Well, if you have the background, you can be original. Uh, if you don't have the background and you're trying to be original, then, then you're probably going to become a crackpot. Uh, you know, but the, every research paper should have lo a, a level of originality in it. If, if it's just like, oh, look, it's a simple harmonic oscillator again. Nobody's going to read it. You know, nobody's going to want to look at it. You have to have some new way of doing it or some new revelation about it. So in that regard, all research is original. Should should they specialize? Should should the listener specialize? Do, do you yourself, would you, would you specialize or should you keep your horizons broader in terms of what you choose to, to, uh, to research? Well, specialization comes about for two reasons. One, we like to organize information into bins. It's easier to study a bin than it is to study everything. This gets back to that top-down approach. Uh, but nature doesn't understand bins. Nature doesn't do it that way. Nature doesn't know if it's physics or chemistry. It doesn't know if it's mechanics or quantum field theory. But there's such a huge amount of information out there that it's practically, it's, it's practically difficult, if not impossible, to master physics. So you have to focus on different areas. So like I like my areas, I focus on fluid dynamics, I focus on chaos theory, and I focus on general relativity. Do you try and link them in any way in your understanding? Sometimes, if they if it makes sense. Uh, like if I'm studying accretion disk flows around a black hole, that's a merger of fluid dynamics and general relativity. But it's bolder to try and recognize that you can't understand certain things and try and not be mechanical in your understanding because that's not how we work or, or, or how, that's not how we understand or think as as nature does not work so it's it's, it's a bolder move to um be adventurous well i think it's impossible not to be adventurous and to make any headway uh, again this goes back to the courage and that level of arrogance you have to be willing to move beyond what we know. I mean, there's a great quote, and I can never remember who, made, who said it originally. It's Traveler, there are no paths here. Paths are made by walking. Now let's talk a bit about our worst enemy here, uh, um, our worst friend, Mr. Crackpot. Um, we've talked a lot about how modern research and study is done, but let's address how to respond to these things and, and avoid the risk of becoming Mr. Crackpot, who abides in, in us all, whether we're academic or amateur, and, and kind of stops the progress of being made despite our efforts and aims to begin with. So um, what is... A crackpot. Who is Mr. Crackpot, George? A crackpot is somebody who believes that their ideas are correct in the face of all arguments to the contrary. Although it's understandable how, how somebody can become a crackpot. I mean, we're always looking for originality in research, and oftentimes people will look at a problem and look at the solutions that are being accepted and think, yeah, that's way too complicated. The mathematics is unbelievable. I can't grasp this. There's got to be a simpler way to do it. And so they come up with this weird uh, development of an idea to explain something that often has no relationship to reality. On the other hand, it's completely understandable because, like I said, there's this, there's this constant battle between 
orthodoxy and originality, as you've been alluding to. You know, we, in, in essence, when you, even in academia, when you get your PhD thesis done, it's graded on how original it is. In other words, how, how defiant of orthodoxy you're being. But at the same time, it has to be within the structure of that orthodoxy. And that's the fine line you have to walk to avoid being a crackpot. And certainly it's come, as we've talked about, it's come from all manners of things. It's, it's very easy to slip into if you don't accept criticism and respond how you should do to uh, your audience or, or, or the or the academics that are criticizing your work. And, it, and it's, if you don't um, accept the kind of, the rules of the game and how and and how and, and your mistakes made, then it's easy to fall into that 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 circle. Whether you're an academic or an amateur, and as you've said before, um, when you're an academic, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of academics out there that are, that are crack crackpots, and um, which kind of defaces the stereotype, as you've said. Um, yeah, and we've we jokingly actually talked about because uh, we before me and George. Were, were when we were talking about the script that I had written before before we made the podcast, I said uh, we should the the Mr. Crackpot should be Doctor Crackpot, and George obviously said uh, no no they should it shouldn't be like that because uh, how how could he get his doctorate if he's a crackpot, which um is a fair point to make he doesn't deserve the the doctorate because that's just not realistic you feel if you're doing research, it's it's very important to um, heed advice and criticism and accept mistakes to progress forward now having said that i must point out that i have encountered professors who are crackpot it, with this should come the risk of expecting your solutions to fail uh, don't expect them to 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 you to succeed first time because that's just not a realistic uh, perspective it takes time and effort as you as you've also alluded to beforehand uh, the, the, the three things that you should carry, one of them being determination. Absolutely. You know, when you start out, expect a lot of your solutions to be wrong. It's just, in, it's just unreasonable to expect that you're just going to start out and be an expert. It just doesn't happen that way. And obviously, when you're doing imitative work, the, the solutions that you will get, if they're the same as the other one, then that's, that's, that means that what I, you know, the method works, um, and and you should go along with that basis. Uh, um, but so the, here's the here's the kind of hitch though. Um, should we assume when you're doing research from an amateur's point of view, when you're starting out, to begin with, should you assume that all research done up till now where you are is spot on? No. No. And why is that? You should always be skeptical. Never accept. Never accept. Uh, delivered wisdom. Make sure that, you know, Richard Feynman, again, going back to him, he always said, figure it out for yourself. Don't just look it up. You know, develop an independent understanding. You know, work through the problems, work through the material, and know why it's real. Know why this is correct. Don't just say, oh, well, this is correct because somebody wrote it. But understand why it's correct. But is, isn't this frustrating uh, from the amateur's point of view, the listener? If, if there's a fine line, in, not, they don't want to become Mr. Crackpot, but surely isn't it difficult to keep an open mind to the problems at hand but not, 
but also be skeptical of them. It's it's a very fine line to fall into. Sure, if it was easy, everybody would be doing it. So how would one cope with personal bias then, if they if they start off? Uh, the the research. Okay, let's assume that they've done the research needed, the correct research they've that, that they've done from all the relevant sources. How do they not? How do they cope with personal bias? Especially as you said, theoretical physics is a very independent and should be independent movement to begin with. How does one cope with personal bias? Well, the first thing to do is recognize that it's there. Everybody has it. And the second thing is to look for it in your work. Maybe make a statement of it when you give it to somebody to read. If you're, if you're going to share it with another person before you try to get it published to see if they can find it. Just because there's a personal bias doesn't mean it's wrong. But it does indicate that you're going to be more skewed. So going into it with that is an important thing to do. Obviously, fundamentally, when we when we talk about this all, it boils down to the the importance of the data simply correlating to the theory. So what you make in you when you make an assumption, if the data validates that assumption, then you are correct. Or within the ability of your description to correlate to the data, and I'm not sure that's even the right word, um, but. Uh, if you're if you make a prediction if you have a model and you make a prediction and the prediction is within the error bounds of the data then you have confidence that your model might be capturing a piece of reality but remember a model is just a shadow of reality it isn't reality itself no model is reality and obviously we want to we want to make sure to to you the listener is that we don't want to kill off Mr. Crackpot. He's an important character to learn from, but we, we also want to make him productive. Um, it's And it's an understandable step to make in becoming a Crackpot. But firstly, we should deface the mysticism that only amateurs can become Mr. Crackpot. It is as easily... Uh, anyone in academia is as easily susceptible to becoming a Crackpot uh, as, as an amateur. Uh, and secondly, obviously... You should admit your faults and mistakes and work from expect to be wrong is, is a good advice to have. Everything from which we've discussed in physics must be taken with a pinch of salt to develop your understanding with the constraint that it follows with what we believe to be reality. Sure, everything begins and ends with nature. But we hope at least some of the information provided is useful for the listener and gives the tools necessary to achieve noteworthy contribution in physics. Make sure to just check the website for a full compendium of articles and links on what we've discussed. That's discussionswithaphysicistblog.wordpress.com and more, including small texts on how to keep a scientific journal and the role of theory in amateur science, written by George Robofsky. Next week, we shall continue on our part two episode of our series on amateur physics research, where we talk about the more underlying concepts required by the amateur physicists, such as classical and quantum mechanics, as well as the fleshing out of more detailed methodologies of research, including an exclusive interview with George on his book, The Theoretical Minimum. A huge thank you to our producer, Ruby Janssen, for providing all the equipment and space necessary to get this thing off the ground. If you have any ideas or feedback to contribute to this discussion, please find us on Facebook at DWAP or check out our website. Thank you.